Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, did you see Mulholland Drive turn 20 this week? What did you think? I watched it the other night and it really upset me. I didn't see me. the anniversary come around. Um, I did see people, yeah, the upsetting bit. I saw mm. people posting photos of that and I was like, oh, there must be some some something up. It's maybe the greatest film of all time. That's a big statement. It's definitely one of the greatest films of all time. It's one of my favourites for sure. I, I, um, you had a rewatch. How did this? Uh, I, I didn't sleep properly. I gen- <laughs> it, And also the scene in question, uh, I guess we're going to yeah. leave this in. So for your benefit, listener, if you've never seen the film Mulholland Drive, Drive. It contains, for my money, the greatest jump scare ever in a film. And I hate jump scares, but this one I think is earned. Um, and oh, I don't, and I, I don't think it cheats you because if anything, it full on lets you know you're about to be in for a jump scare. And somehow, and even what it is, like it's so mundane. But mm. David Lynch just has this ability to just throw so much atmosphere into it that it's the most terrifying thing of all time. Even like right now, talking about it, I'm kind of scared. It's like. I've seen the film multiple times. The first time I saw it as like as a as an edgy teenager, I really didn't like the film. I totally fucking dismissed it. I thought it was just abstract nonsense for the sake of it. And I was completely wrong. Like when I watched it again a second time eventually, I was like, oh hang on, wait, this is actually amazing. I was just totally wrong. Um and I've seen it multiple times since. I saw it in the lighthouse there a few years ago with Higgs, and it was like turned it was like a Sunday afternoon or something, probably around this time of year. And somehow when that bit came on, I managed yeah. to sit there and I managed to hold my gaze and I managed to keep the focus on the screen and I didn't flinch and I didn't look away and I, I experienced it. And I just felt this shock run through my system. This time, having even gone on Twitter that day and been like, happy 20th birthday to like, you know, Mahal and Drive and the scary scene of all time and just putting up a still image from the moment before the moment. Yeah. Sitting there after work the other night and I'm watching it in my room, curtains closed, lights off and the bit is about to happen. And I swear, man, I put my entire arm over my face. I couldn't do it. I couldn't watch it. It's that bad. And then... It's a waking nightmare. And then I really didn't sleep well. I genuinely was fucking tormented that night going to sleep, so... Jesus. So that John Carpenter quote is a load of trash then about like watching a horror film and like sleeping like a baby afterwards because it just kind of gets it out of your system. I guess it depends on the horror. Anyway, well, look. Yeah. Speaking of horror... (laughs)
name is Dave Hanready and there shall be no encore. It's episode 299. Craig Fitzpatrick is with me. It's spooky season. Everyone hates that term, but it is. How are you feeling? Hey, you getting on? You watch any horror movies? I'm feeling spooky. I haven't been. Um, I started a Buffy, I was going to say rewatch, but I never properly watched it the first time through. And I have Disney Plus for X-Files. I was like, I'll watch an episode or two to see if it holds up. And it's kind of spooky, but I don't have, it's not huge investment. And yeah, it's pretty good. I'm, I'm not going to stick with it, but yeah. Buffy was good, despite all the <laughs> problematic stuff around its creator and all of that kind of thing. Uh, just walked us into that. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, walk us out. I'll just say the first three seasons of Buffy are very good. Angel is the better show, as far as I'm concerned. That's the island I will die on. It's a better uh, show. I always thought that was like the one tree hill to Buffy's OC, but well, anyway. Hence my appreciation <laughs> for it. Angel's the better show. And it ends incredibly well. One of the great endings, I would say. But this is all about beginnings, everybody. It's 299. Well, I guess it maybe is about endings, because we are coming to the end of, a, I guess, the third century of the show. Does that make sense? Um, It's 299. We are doing top five B-sides on this episode, Craig. It's a listener suggestion. A listener over on Patreon, patreon.com slash encore, if you want to help keep this show in business. And the business is good, Craig. How do you feel about this this week's top five and this week's episode? I'm really glad we're going for it. I'm glad that we have the excuse of um, doing something for the listeners because this has been on our list for a while. A very long I think time. It's, it, do you know what? It might be the most like high fidelity of top fives, which is already, you know, that most high fidelity of things, I think. Certainly in like the top five most top fiveiest music nerdiest bits we're going to do. And I'm excited for it. Um, I kind of had a few songs immediately in mind, as I'm sure you did. I'll be interested to hear what your process was like. Are we sticking to... The old faithful traditional thing of like the formats being this has to be on a side of vinyl or cassette, I guess, or at least a second track that's slightly diminished. I don't know. We'll get into the permutations, but I've got some crackers. I'm sure you will. Um, People have been on to us guessing what we're going to have. So, yeah. It's, you know, it's all the talk, apparently. It's the talk of the town. I, talk yeah. of the town, man. <clears throat> I, I, I want to just make a quick disclaimer and declaration before we continue with the episode. Um, I put the new section together this week as well. Yeah. So I will say, um, with apologies, this is without question my most uh, white guy with guitars episode ever. The entire new section is, almost the entire <laughs> new section is just the most Radio Nova thing you're ever going to hear. And then my top five is just that. So look, it's just, it, it's, it's been a really busy week. Uh, I haven't had a lot of I free mean, time. I mean, spoilers, <laughs> we have Demi Lovato talking about aliens. So. That's correct. That's the one yeah. non-Nova kind of <laughs> element we have on this entire We're episode. Modern. But um, I mentioned Patreon, patreon.com slash noancore. If you want to help support the show, you get playlists on there. For example, Craig's recent Kid Cut playlist and his beautiful essay that he wrote as well and bonus episodes in the form of our monthly no ox cord in which we pick out recommends whether it's new older whichever uh we're going to record a new one this weekend i'm told so that's happening and i'm looking forward <laughs> to people it. tell us <laughs> we've synced up our schedules and it's the happening. sonic architect adam has, has very generously made some time uh for, for us to do this so uh yeah please show us some love listener patreon.com slash no encore and we love you too so um sh- should we tease episode 300 we are doing something a little bit different or should we just wait until it rolls around adam is shaking his um, head we'll there's keep... something special in store i think we'll leave it at that will yeah we? there's something special happening for episode 300 i'll just say that much particularly if you're a if you're a kind of a long-term listener you're giving it people away people will enjoy you're it just giving it away uh, now yeah <laughs> if you've been with us from we've the got start Kanye on all right <laughs> if you've been with us from the, the start you, you should be happy next week presuming nothing goes wrong but look that's the plan we'll do what we can hopefully next year when things are a bit more whatever we can maybe get back to some kind of live situation it isn't that so please don't be freaking out that we're like doing some kind of small secluded gathering we're 
not. It's going to be remote yet again. But uh, not so remote, Craig, is us plowing ahead at the speed of light into, of course, this section. Hey, you heard about the good news? That intro didn't make any fucking sense, but I don't care. It's time to talk about Paul McCartney. Uh, Fighting words from Paul this week, Craig. Beatles, everything old is new again. The Beatles are cool again. There's a documentary. You mentioned Disney Plus earlier on that you have. Will you be watching this three-part Beatles documentary coming at the end of November, directed by Peter Jackson. It's called Get Back. And I believe, Craig, uh, it's Mm -hmm. literally never before seen footage. It looks very exciting for Beatles fans. I'm not one of those, though, so I'll probably not tune in. But it does look very good, I will say that. Yeah, I was um, sceptical. It's a kind of period that never really interested me hugely. And then I watched, like, the trailer just this morning. I was a bit late coming to it. And um, as I was getting ready for work, and I... (laughs) I got very excited. The footage seems great. You just kind of remember like the chemistry between them and it's good chemistry as things are falling apart. Just the quality of the footage as well. Um, it's like, it feels like you're right there. So yes, I will be watching. Um, and yeah, I'm hyped. I'm hyped. I think it's going to be good. So it's apparently cobbled together from like 60 hours of unseen video footage and over 150 hours of audio footage. And there is talk that there will be some fraying tensions on display. And Paul McCartney, who's promoting a new book of his own, not the documentary, he's done a couple of interviews this week. He's spoken to the BBC, spoken to the New Yorker, I think, um, probably various others. But two things that he, um, he, he said this week stood out to me enough to give it two different headlines. I've gone with Maca on the Attacker, which I think is really Thank good. Yeah. Wordplay from Incredible me. Incredible work. Thanks. Um, so the first one is uh, apparently for 50 years, 51 years, people have been under the impression that Paul McCartney was the chief instigator of the split in the Fab Four, but he has now thrown John Lennon under the bus. John Lennon not here to defend himself. What do you think, Craig? <laughs> I don't think I was one of those people. I think I was pr- pretty certain that it was, but by the end, it was. Paul McCartney that was trying to hold things together just because like Abbey Road um, which was actually the last thing they recorded together and I think far better than that P, most people would agree but he was very much going okay we, you know you know let's get the band together for one last time and pushing everyone and doing the majority of the writing but yeah publicly um, it seemed to be the case that he was like I'm done with this I've, I've a huge amount of sympathy for Paul McCartney in like in that scenario um, it seemed like Lennon was done with it there's amazing um, soundbite from that trailer where Paul McCartney at the time, like back in fucking 1969 or whatever, is just like, we're going to look back in 50 years and be like, isn't this like absolutely crazy that we broke up the band because Yoko sat on an amp? <laughs> it's just like, oh well, yeah, um, that's kind of what happened, uh, I guess. But in this BBC interview, he's been talking about the split and how it was prompted by Lennon. He said, I didn't instigate the split. That was our Johnny I'm not the person who instigated the split. Oh, no, no, no. John walked into a room one day and said, I am leaving the Beatles. And he said, it's quite thrilling. It's rather like a divorce. And I then mean, we were left to pick up the pieces. Like rather like thrilling like a divorce. I mean, maybe Phil Collins is on this kind of wavelength. We've talked at length about divorce court, but I would have thought that divorce is a very sad occasion. But apparently not if you're in the Beatles. Um, I, I was more I was more intrigued by his um, his invective thrown in the way of my boys, the Rolling Stones. Uh, yeah. This week. So he's given out about them. He's done it before, but he did it again. When he spoke to The New Yorker, it was in fact The New Yorker, he said, um, I'm not sure I should say it, but they're a blues cover band. 
that's sort of what the stones are. I think our net was cast a bit wider than theirs. He spoke to your boy Howard Stern back in April 2020 and said that the Beatles were better. Uh, yeah, he was kind of cajoled into that one, I think. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Howard Stern was like, oh, come on, you were far better. And he's like, I don't want to be the one to say it. But then he did go on to say it. Um, at the time, he said their stuff's rooted in the blues. When they're writing stuff, it has to do with the blues, whereas we had a little more influences. There's a lot of differences, but I uh, love the Stones. But but I'm with you. The Beatles were better. <laughs> Mick Jagger responded um, when he was talking to Zane Lowe, who, you know, renowned for stirring it. And he said, laughing, there's obviously no competition. But then he did a Lampardian transition, though, Craig, and he went into serious mode. And he was like, the big difference, though, and sort of slightly seriously, is that the Rolling Stones have been a big concert band other decades and other years where the Beatles never even did an arena tour. Madison Square Garden with a decent sound system. They broke up before that business started, the touring business for real, which I guess... It is not, you know, it's not really a revelation. Rolling Stones are a, a much more commercially focused act, right? Like they've always known. That's, that, like that, the implication there is that Mick Jagger is kind of putting his hands up and being like, okay, they might have us on like the albums and the actual music, but we tour a lot. <laughs> We're a good live band. And that kind of feeds into the, you know, I adore the Stones, but that quote of like them being a blues cover band, like Mick Jagger certainly at this stage decades on feels he's more maybe of a performer they're more players than creators which is obviously a ludicrous thing to say when you consider the run of albums they had late 60s to kind of well late 70s nearly but um yeah, it sounds like he's admitting defeat on the creative front, right? But he's a, like, he's a showman, and I'm sure he just takes he one look at his bank balance and probably doesn't care. I thought he was just being a bit magnanimous and then also trying to like carve out some land, and that land being, you know, a big fucking dollar sign. But, you know, the Stones are in the news themselves this week, Craig, and I have to ask you, is nothing sacred? Will the woke generation stop at nothing? That's what I want to know this week. They've dropped um, brown, sugar from, brown their, sugar from their set list. Why have they done that, Craig? Because the lyrics are appalling, quite That's frankly. Fair. I remember thinking that like, <laughs> as a teenager. It's got a great riff. And then you're like, hold on, what is Mick Jagger singing like gleefully about? Well, let me and ask you this, because yeah. Yeah, like, I mean, in fairness, like, I, I think you and I are probably, you know, even though we do a music podcast every week, there are probably plenty of songs that we love that we don't stop sometimes to just listen to what's being said. Yeah, so it's, it, you know, the subject matter of the verses of Brown Sugar is a lot to do with depictions of like black women in America, references to slavery, and it's sung from a point of view as if Mick Jagger was like a slave owner. And I guess the intention at the time, and certainly what Keith Richards is saying um, when he confirms the decision to kind of quote unquote bury the track was that, listen, it's it's kind of satire. It's taking on the horrors of slavery. That's what he said. They, uh, didn't they understand this was a song about the horrors of slavery? Um, hoping, he's hoping that they'll be able to resurrect the babe in her glory somewhere along the track. And he kind of admitted defeat where he was just like, we don't want to get into it. We don't want this to be an argument. He kind of did a whole, I'm tired, um, which is fair enough. Um, but Mick Jagger said years ago that like, um, like back in 1995, he told Rolling Stone, I would never write that song now. I would probably censor myself. I think, oh God, I can't. I've got to stop. God knows what I'm on about on that song. It's such a mishmash. All the nasty subjects in one go. And I certainly do think it's a case of like having your kind of cake and eating it too. Do you know what I mean? That you can- years later, he's like, you know what? Maybe now it's time. 
But also Keith Richards' thing of like, it's satire, you know, it's it's taken on, it's a protest anthem about the horrors of slavery. Okay, but like lyrically, it's from a certain perspective. And the whole tone of the song is like, it's a party song. And he's singing it with glee. It's very easy for that to get lost in translation. Oh, it's a jukebox song every day of the week. Like you've heard it a million times yeah. in small town bars. Yeah, and, and that kind we, of stuff. you know, don't tell me all the wrong sorts of people don't love this song. Um my whole thing, of course, would just be like, I'm not in favour of really much in the way of cens- censorship. Um, it's not one of my favourite Stone songs. I wouldn't have a problem with them continuing to play it at shows that people intentionally go to and probably love that song. It's their I second most it's played live song ever. Their yeah, se- that kind of surprised me. Yeah, Jumping Jump Jack, Jack Flash, Flash is number one. one, which I was like, really? Is that riff, man? Yeah. <laughs> um... I mean, as an artist, you have to be able to approach that kind of subject matter. But it seems like the band are like, eh, at this stage, we don't really care. We don't want to get into a debate about it. We'll retire it if people are annoyed, which is like fine. But of course, course, people on Twitter are like, that is not fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a war on culture. Like, fuck off. Um, Piers Morgan waded in and all that uh, kind of nonsense. Speaking of. You got got to block and mute that account, man. Um, So, I mean, I will say like, I don't know, maybe they'll they'll, they'll just play Gimme Shelter twice or something. It'll be fine. I'd be happy with that. But one act that we wouldn't go and see and don't want to hear any songs by is Eric Speak Clapton. Speak for yourself, mate. <laughs> All right. It's Eric- slow hands. See, I'm, I'm glad you said that because like the, I re- the Rolling Stone, the Rolling Stone, Rolling Stone did a very long uh, investigation on Eric Clapton, quite like really, really good music journalism uh, this week about how he's funding a band who are promoting anti-vaccine sentiment. But I'll get to that in a second. But like the slow hand thing, right? I didn't know that was his nickname and I'm reading the article and I won't say she just casually references him as Slowhand and I was like, sorry, what Bond villain have I stumbled upon in this in, in, in this piece of in, information? To do with his guitar technique, which never really sounded that complimentary. I guess it was just like, oh, he's got such a great touch and feel with his playing and his bluesy cribbing of far superior musicians and doing nothing creative with it whatsoever. I added that last bit. But uh, yeah, Slowhand, or as he used to be known back in the day, God... There was apparently graffiti everywhere back in the like late sixties and seventies of like Clapton as God. I never we've talked about this on the show before. I never got the kind of adulation he gets as an artist and He's always been a despicable prick. Yeah, no, he absolutely has been. I mean, has been rather. He's a rotten bastard. Um, But like the rotten bastard has um, donated $1,300 to a band called Jam for Freedom. What the fuck? Also, by the way, a bit of a cheapskate. Like he's a multimillionaire. You know, if this is your belief, fair enough. Back it up. Uh, $1,300. You're you're one of those people, Craig, are you? When a celebrity makes a donation to charity, you're like, why wasn't it 25 million? Like, you know, like... Yeah, at Craigie Slane weighs in. <laughs> <laughs> Keep up the good work, Piers. Uh, so essentially, he's yeah he, he's donated uh, thirteen hundred uh, American dollars and the use of his touring van to this band, and apparently has, has has made a, a further a further uh, undisclosed donation so that they can buy their own van. He's essentially like just like fostering further rotten anti-vaccine stuff. Uh, I'm not I'm not getting into it too much. I will say that the Rolling Stone report was very interesting. And it was very, like, very thorough. Um, but this kind of stuff is kind of hysterical, isn't it? And not in the funny way. It is. What is his? Like, has he just lost his mind? I All think these so. older rockers that have just been like ensconced in luxury for decades upon decades, and people like taking everything they say is gospel, and they still think they're like. What is the cause? Like they're renegades. They're like fighting the system because I guess they believe in like the Illuminati or something now. These people have lost their minds. I don't know. Well, 
One thing I do know, Craig, is that it's a sad day. And actually, this is genuinely a sad story. At first, I was kind of, I thought it was kind of a bit of fun, but it isn't. Uh, the singer oh, of yeah. Smash Mouth, uh, Steve Harwell, is calling it a day. He's retiring from the band. Uh, apparently, there was a chaotic gig that took place in New York last weekend. He's actually had health issues for quite some time, and he yeah. was very disorientated at a show, slurring his words. And again, the type of thing that you read while fucking doom scrolling on Twitter, and you're like, uh... Smash Mouth, wacky, they're memes, right? But it seems like he's genuinely in a bad way. Uh, he was diagnosed with cardiomyopathy eight years ago and has suffered side effects that impact his memory and motor functions. So yeah, it's, it's that weird kind of real life, real struggle crossover thing that you, you, you find with a band of this nature who for the longest time have been a joke. And I think a, a band that have been in on the joke, of course, as well. Um, I, I, you know, when they tweet about 9-11 and stuff, um, I assume there's a, a knowing eyebrow being raised, but who, know. who knows? I, I will for, apart from all of the hits, uh, the, the great music all we've of got the over hits. the years, I, w- I will forever remember them as, um, the biggest bands that didn't play Trump's inauguration, but you remember that meme of just like Trump just kind of clapping along to some terrible marching band, but it was like Smash Mouth overlaid on it. Um, and it kind of, it seemed to fit, I guess. And that didn't, I think we covered them recently enough. I might be misre- misremembering, but didn't they get some stick for doing a kind of like... Super spreader events. Yeah, yeah. In like, was it like a, a motorcycle rally in like? I think South it's the Dakota same one. I think it's the Sturgis, which is like they do motorcycle rallies there. I think it's the same thing that Chris Jericho's band played that weekend as well. Okay, yeah, and it was yeah. at the height of like Americans dying every fucking five seconds due to COVID, and it was extremely like, well, this shouldn't be happening anyway. But like, Fuzzy and Smashmouth are, 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 are you're going to die for this? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess not the best for him doing those kind of shows, um, taking care of himself. He's made he's made a, a, the right decision, I guess. Uh, cardiomyopathy to do with your kind of heart heart muscles is that I th- I believe that's what George Michael was suffering with. It's a very serious thing, anyway, and certainly touring live is not something you want to put in the mix. Um, so yeah, I guess we totally wish him well. Sad that it kind of ended like that, and he, it seemed like he was kind of having a bit of back and forth with fans and clearly distressed by the side effects of his condition. So yeah, no, it is, it is sad and we wouldn't wish kind of any ill will or ill health on anybody. So hopefully he has a long and happy life away from the spotlight. Yeah. And no mockery. I mean, there might be some mockery in the next story. I don't know. Craig did mention earlier on, we have a Demi Lovato story. What have they been up to this week? <laughs> so the singer has been talking about this new documentary they're doing, Unidentified, where Lovato investigates the truth about perceived UFO phenomena. And Demi said that they think aliens is a derogatory term when used to describe extraterrestrials. I haven't heard the audio clip of this. I am hoping there's something where this is very much, you know, bit of bands, tongue in cheek. I don't know. But yeah, during a chat with E! News, Lovato said fans shouldn't call extraterrestrials aliens because it's a derogatory term for anything. Now, I guess there's a point to be made, of course, that uh, yeah, aliens used in the context of, you know, migrants and yeah, stuff can be yeah. totally weaponized. And yeah, that's a, that's a fair shout. But aliens as in Aliens. aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Don't take that from us, please. And also, sorry, Lovato also said, um, they said... I call them ETs. That's worse, I think, because that like brings the Steven Spielberg uh, not terribly yeah, aesthetically pleasing, weird little chap, bumbling alien to mind. So yeah, and again, what I love about this though, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I had the same thought process. I was like, yeah, that word can be thrown around in a very fucking hateful way, a very specifically racist way. However, Lovato is 
describing this as if aliens are among us and like it's a regular everyday. Oh, I, I think that's a given right? oh yeah so you're just trying to find here, the evidence yeah. <laughs> yeah fair enough case closed at this point case closed and finally before we move on uh there's a madonna film coming and apparently i mean, like it's i don't think a, a a piece of film has been has been shed on the cutting room floor what am i saying uh, apparently <laughs> it's it's a very draining experience already she's um overseeing the, the whole thing oh sorry i thought you meant the episode oh it um, is yeah, yeah, yeah sorry madonna's yeah. Yeah, um, she's talked about this being, um, essentially she hasn't done a memoir. She's doing this as what she calls a kind of visual autobiography. Um, And yeah, it's the most draining, challenging experience of her life, uh, as you say. I guess so, like she, she wrote the script... Um, and it's kind of principally the writing of the script and her life story that, you know, reliving through her past that she says is draining, draining, which kind of, again, makes sense, right? Like the quote here is, it's kind of like a psych- psychotherapy in a way, because I have to remember every detail from my childhood till now. Uh, she went on to say, remembering all the things that made me decide to be who I am, my journey as an artist, my decision to leave Michigan, to go to New York, all the things that happened to me when I was young and naive, my relationships with my family and friends, watching many of my friends friends die. Sometimes I have writing sessions where I go to bed and I just want to cry. Um, so yeah, this is another story where it seems whimsical and then shit gets real. But um, <laughs> the quotes, you know, the kind of the, the most draining, challenging experience I've ever had, they, that sounded word for word like your review when you finally get around to watching this thing mm-hmm. <laughs> for no popcorn mm-hmm. in about a year and a half. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine this will be great. But she's the, <laughs> it does but she's the queen of pop. Somehow right Craig. that she's doing this though, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it feels a bit overdue at this stage. I wonder if it's, would it have been more of a hit in, say, but then again, I mean, what am I saying? I mean, like, look at films like Bohemian Rhapsody and um, even A Star is Born. Um, what, what was the other big, Rocket Man? I do. Like, these are big yeah. fucking films. Like, Rocket pe- Man. Rocket Man. <laughs> James back, back into the conversation. <laughs> um, I do think you, you're onto something there in terms of we're in a bit of a, a lull period in terms of Madonna fandom. Obviously, there's a hardcore there, but she hasn't had that moment where, and I guess maybe it's because she's not quite that generation, but like Queen suddenly becomes popular again with a kind of new generation or, you know, everything comes back around. I don't think Madonna's come back around fully. Maybe she's had a few cycles where, of course, you know, she's the queen of um, reinventions and stuff and she's had a tremendously long career, but the last few albums haven't done much business. She seems to have lost that knack for tapping into Zeitgeist and there hasn't been a real kind of that kind of critical thing where Pitchfork, you know, relooks at her 80s stuff and it's just like, this is some of the most important pop music ever created. Um, Actually, maybe they have something, I don't know. But we haven't had that thing of just like, you know, putting her alongside an ABBA. We're having that ABBA moment, you know, the last five years, it seems, where it's just like, actually, they're the greatest artists of all time. Maybe she'll have that moment. It doesn't seem to be now. So yeah, maybe the film could wait a while or it should have been earlier or she's missed her moment. Who knows? Well, yeah, the film could, in fact, 
um, invite spark something. invite that conversation yeah. that you just had there, yeah. like like on a, on a global scale, and it probably will, I guess, if they cast it right and get a good director and yada yada. She's been on the precipice of being more of a, a meme for a while, with increasing like kind of either weird videos or strange performances or you know whatever. And then of course you also have like a snobbery towards her, kind of an ageist kind of slant that's kind of come her yeah, way with some sure. criticism, and you know people kind of referring to her as like a pop granny or something, which is completely unfair, uh, especially well it's unfair anyway. But as you say, I mean, like this is someone who at a certain for, for, for the 80s and probably a lot of the 90s was this absolute icon, genuinely iconic before that word was ran to the fucking ground by people on Twitter every day. Um, she deserves a lot of respect. But at the yeah. same time, yeah, from a quality control point of view, that hasn't been there for a very long time. But it's, it's all about quality, though, isn't it, Craig? And it's all about control in our top five this week, because uh, I guess if you stick to the B-side mantra, this is songs that, like, you know, they're technically they exist, but they weren't put front and center, yet some of them became front and center by themselves. Craig mentioned yeah. earlier on, are we going to stick to the script and just be like, well, this had to be a B-side on a vinyl? Um, not fully for me. I've done my usual kind of uh, tenuous slash um, adventurous loop on this one. The B-side, what does it mean to you? Um, it's got a long kind of prestigious history. I always thought of it as... Um a nice kind of curated moment of discovery. Um, it, it's kind of so linked to physical stuff as well with me where, you know, I w- wasn't really at the age where I was like buying vinyls from the get-go. Pieces of vinyl, should I say, as a collector. Dave, you will know that terminology. But yeah, certainly <laughs> like buying like fucking CD singles as a kid and stuff, you would be kind of half excited about what else was going to be on the thing. And then you would realize it was a live version of an album track and you'd be like, okay, this isn't great. Certainly then getting into like you know, the new rock revolution and stuff. I think it had a bit of a resurgence where there was this kind of thing of like the prestige of, oh, actually we've kind of got great material and we're being a bit adventurous. And yeah, it's certainly, it was a nice space where there wasn't too many eyes and ears on it. Artists could get a bit inventive. Stuff that was stockpiled didn't fit in with like what their record label thought they should be promoting, um, could be let out. So often you would get these bursts of kind of creativity and weird detours and some remarkably good songs that just didn't quite fit into the mold onto the album wouldn't kind of push sales um but yeah it does go right back like 50s and 60s when the singles were the thing like the album as a kind of piece of art as like the sole you know the sole masterpiece work of like the rock genre didn't really happen until I guess Sgt Pepper's and prior to that it was all about the artifact of the single. So the B side, the flip side of that A side was hugely important. Um, And you had things like, you know, songs getting picked up by radio in the States and being played more than the A sides. And I guess as we go through, we might talk about that where you have instances where really famous songs were put out as the B sides and then just through sheer kind of popularity and stuff, they took off and kind of far exceeded the A side. So yeah, it's just a kind of a weird little niche that's kind of fading away that gave artists um, a chance to kind of flex a bit and had a lot of interesting results, I guess. Yeah, totally. Um, So I think for me, it was some of that. And for me, it was kind of like cutting room floor stuff that somehow gets repackaged which i'm kind of against generally but why don't you kick us off this week and then we can get to my i guess my kind of weird grievances i have of which i have many in general (laughs) i can't wait to get to your grievances that's always my favorite part of the show but before that and my number five and um this um 
this group have been the source of some ridicule on this podcast in the past. Um, they featured in stuff like, you know, um, Songs We Hate by Artists We Love. Uh, they featured in overrated albums. You probably know where we're going with this. If any band needs more praise heaped on them, it's these fabulous guys. It's been a while since Oasis have been on the podcast, Craig. What was your thinking on this one? Very good. Boom, boom. Certainly with, certainly with the shine. <laughs> That's exactly where Leamy G got it for. John Lennon and the Beatles with Rain from May of 1966. It was the flip of Paperback Writer, which is one of their great, great singles. And yeah, I've always loved this. And it's it kind of fills a lot of those um, roles we talked about a minute ago where it was them expanding creatively, trying things, being a bit daring. And it was a real turning point, I guess. So what's happening with the Beatles at this point is um, you've just had the album Help and kind of Rubber Soul and they're moving away from kind of pure pop slash rock pop and just mixing up sounds, taking in different influences, playing with the studio um, and Abbey Road and George Martin and just kind of working with really kind of quite rudimentary technology, but just seeing how far they could take it. And that was certainly the case with this. So there's a lot of kind of maybe actually quite boring historic things about this song, right? So they did a kind of, you know, it ends with this fade out, kind of fade in coda thing that would then be used on like lots of huge songs and would be used by Oasis quite a bit when they were getting experimental 30 years later. Um, there's other things of like the backward, um, the backward kind of playing different sound effects, like John Lennon kind of got stoned, accidentally played it backwards, like, oh, this is interesting. And then they did it quite a bit. But actually, do you know what? I just love this as a song. I, I think it's the essence of what made the Beatles great in terms of their themes and content where yes they're getting psychedelic and yes this seems like an acid trip but it was based on John Lennon just kind of picking up that thing of just like English people and I guess people in general uh, certainly from these oils as well just talking about the weather a lot and the bad weather and there was like a moment where they touched down in Australia and people it was bucketing down and people were just nattering on and on about it and he was just like I have to do a kind of song about how banal this is but somehow elevate it so you've got that weird mix of like psychedelia but also the kind of acerbic like cynical um, down to earth thing which I think kind of kept the Beatles grounded and then just musically um, that fucking rhythm section man Ringo said this was his best drumming performance and he's probably not wrong it's tremendous and then you have Paul McCartney who like of course an incredible songwriter but his bass playing he's taking that bass for a walk they sound great together and I think that's probably you know if anything <laughs> If anything is kind of underrated about the Beatles, and I would make the argument that there probably isn't, um, but it might just be how tight and good that rhythm section was and inventive. And you can just kind of hone in on that and move away from the kind of proto drone stuff going on and just really enjoy the pocket they're in. I think it's really fun. It's really good. 
Um, I also it points for the fact that my dad told me a story of him being in primary school back in the day. And there was like this class where they all had to get up and sing a song. And uh, little Hugh Fitzpatrick got up and sang this. Oh my God. <laughs> weird psychedelics <laughs> in front of the class uh, in his fucking, yeah, in his school shorts and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one. But yeah, that's my number five. Incredible. Um, are you are you one over? Or are you yeah, I was, was, was going to say, gonna say can, I, can, can I just shock you? I like this song, and hey. I love I love Ringo's drumming on it because um, like it is that kind of like M eighty three kind of like you know metally kind of you know I was, I was like it's it's not quite uh, it's not quite a blast beat, Craig, but it's not a million miles away. It's a beautiful flourish. But if it's a blast beat you're after, well, here's my number five. Guesses, Craig, as to who that is? I will just say they missed a trick not making that the single. <laughs> Surely you know who this is. Who is it? Really? You don't know? Well, if Who you, is it? If you don't know, now you know. It's Slipknot, of course. Oh, okay. I was going to say Slipknot, but well, you didn't. it seemed too obvious. You didn't. No, yeah, I didn't. No, listen, it's an obvious pick because obviously, like, I, how often do I pick them? Quite often. But the song is called Scream, as you may have picked up by the lyrics. And this 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 allows me the opportunity to air my grievances generally because I was having this conversation the weekend with our good friend Carla Malocco. Um, we were discussing the new, the new Sam Fender album, which you and I debated very briefly about reviewing, which isn't to knock Sam Fender. I think we just weren't really in the mood for some kind of English earnestness a week after James Blake, perhaps. Um, I've heard the Sam Fender album. It's certainly not bad. And the lead yeah. single, 17 and Going Under, is a great song. Um, he's capable of great songs. It is a bit springy. But he did appear on Breakfast TV in a Newcastle shirt after Saudi Arabia took over. And he was, so I think morally... Yeah, we, <laughs> and he was wildly hungover, I believe. Um, I interviewed was. him at a festival. Nice guy. You know, didn't really want to do the interview. Who cares? Anyway, look, um, I had the same experience about two years ago. Did, yeah, did you? <laughs> by Dave Fanning. I had to like orchestrate the interview with Dave Fanning. It was a weird kind of setup. Dave Fanning didn't know what was going on and neither did Sam Fender. I kind of knew what was going on, but it didn't help me. Um, but he seemed, he's a nice chap. He seems like a nice chap. Um, yeah. I, I'm, uh, if he's going to, I know he gets it a lot, including from me that day, but like, if you're going to kind of turn your nose up at being the Geordie Springsteen, maybe stop writing songs that are the Geordie Springsteen. Anyway, that's yeah. a whole other world away from Slipknot who we're here to discuss um, the thing I was talking about with Carlo was that like if you go onto Spotify the default and I think only uh, edition of his new album Sam Fender's new album is the fucking 16 track deluxe edition I think it's an 11 track album um, mm. and with Slipknot volume 3 The Subliminal Verses which came out in 2004 and for me is their masterpiece Corey Taylor has often given out about Rick Rubin which I know will upset Adam um, but you know the results speak for themselves as far as I'm concerned it's a five-star album, no matter the genre, it's pretty much perfect. Um, but again, if you go on Spotify, they only have the Super Duper Deluxe Edition, which has different artwork as well, which pisses me off. But the point is, 
I just don't like that gaming the system thing. And the idea of a deluxe edition of an album in general, I've never really fucked with. I'm not yeah. mad about it. Every now and then you get a nice curio. Like Papa Roach's second album has a cover of Gouge Away by the Pixies. And I think maybe a Fate in the More track as well. And that's a bit of fun. But at the same time, there's something I don't like about it. I don't like the kind of, here's the album and here's a couple of B-sides, here's a couple of live tracks, bonus tracks, whatever, remixes. I'm not saying it shouldn't exist. And maybe fans love that. Maybe there are some fans who, who really want that kind of stuff. And I did buy the White Pony thing recently, which has a separate vinyl of remixes. I don't know how often I'm going to pull that out of its fucking sleeve, though. But the point is, I think this is my exception to the rule. Scream by Slipknot. Okay. It was tacked on as a Japanese bonus track edition or whatever. And then it became like part of disc two when they did like a special edition overall. And the reason I say this is because for all the praise that's heaped upon the album, I wish this song was on the album. Now, I do think that there's a slight, oh fuck, where would it go in terms of the narrative construction of the record? I think you could just about squeeze it in. You certainly couldn't close on it, but I do think of a quality standpoint, it's up there with most of the other songs on there. I think it's a really great distillation of the band. I think the lyrics are on point. It's just really fun. It's got an incredible chorus that it withholds for a very long time. And it's just kind of there. Like, it's just kind of floating in the Slipknot ether. And in closing, I will say this. Slipknot are a weird band in that they've got some B-sides that rule. They've got some rarities that are great. But as time would progress, they would commit with these really bad watered-down bonus tracks pretty much from the album beyond this one that would just feel like kind of stone-sour rejects or whatever Corey Taylor was noodling right. about that day. But Scream, to me, as a thing that you throw away is just like, fuck, this, they really were firing on every possible cylinder at this point. It's a great song by a great band. That's a good point that the B-side is often a good barometer of where the band was at. And like if they're in the middle of a purple patch, you can get some outstanding work. And on the deluxe thing, I was reading a piece by uh, Michael Craig, I think, for Guardian last year, where he said actually... The B-side, or at least the spirit of the B-side, is making a bit of a comeback. And that deluxe thing where now it's streaming, where you're constantly trying to inflate numbers and also keep yourself like ever present in the conversation. You've got Drake releasing stuff like that care package thing, which goes to one and that's off cuts. That's essentially B-sides. So the B-side is kind of back. Maybe it's not like as antiquated as um, we kind of said earlier on. Um, my number four, with that said, is probably one you could have guessed. Um... If I wasn't on Worst Duets Duty for our Duets episode, this might have featured on my best. And here it is. <laughs> I know that this was, we did, was it for the podcast? We did a top 10 stroke it songs was, yeah. list a while ago. Good few years ago now. Yeah. And I remember you being an extreme champion of this one. Yeah, it's the strokes, it's modern girls and old fashioned men. It was the B-side of Reptilia, uh, 2004. And actually I'm slightly distracted as you might've noticed on Zoom, Dave, because I realized there's a bunch of singles above my head. 
And surely this, I actually own this. I own the CD of this. I own an import copy of this because at the time you couldn't get a good version of Modern Girls and Old Fashioned Men um, without having the physical thing. So this might be the one example of me actually having to buy a single to get this song. Wow. So that's quite the throwback. Um, Yeah, I always kind of really dug this one. I think Regina Spector works really well with Julian here. Um, They're a bit of a mismatch, but I think lyrically that's kind of what they're going for. I love those, I love any kind of um, duet that has counterpoint melodies where they're singing different verses, they're singing different lyrics, they've got different melodies and it just becomes this lattice thing um, and a kind of at moments call and response thing. And then on certain kind of key, quite existentially despairing lines, they kind of join together. Um, it's like a kind of indie rock version of Doris Day and Perry Como doing like a duet on TV. Like there's there's an amazing clip of Perry Como and Doris Day um, from like the early 70s just kind of singing to each other and kind of like just slightly staring past each other. And you can imagine Regina Spector and Julian doing th- that exact thing. Um because Julian always had a bit of that lounge, you know, easy listening crooner thing, but like singing through a traffic cone in a payphone or something. Um, and then guitar work on it's great. It's like your classic strokes thing, but with something different going on. And I think Albert and Nick are doing kind of what the vocals are doing. It's that the adults are talking thing where it's like a duel. It's a back and forth. It's a conversation. It's a bit of a curio. And I really like that. Um, not least for if I had the actual thing itself there's a cool um, the cover art is really cool it's a pity I don't have it on vinyl but it's credited to um, Regina Spector and the Strokes on the front of the single even though it's Reptilia which is a kind of weird thing to kind of promote the B-side on the cover and it was delayed the release of it was delayed because um, initially it read The Strokes and Regina Spector and Julian saw the copies and was just like no 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 it has to be like we're her backing band this is kind of putting her in the spotlight and at the time and if people have read uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom that Lizzie Goodman book um, she talks about how The Strokes and Kings Leon would take her on tour and Julian was kind of a big champion um not really a kind of <laughs> i don't know all that help may i guess he was very helpful but it just seemed like it was his first time maybe doing a bit of a and r and trying to get a, an artist promoted and out there and it was a bit of like it was a bit clumsy but took her on the road they had a great time she had a lot of time for lads and it's just a kind of heartwarming story um so yeah that kind of reminds me of all of that and i still haven't found the actual copy you can keep looking for it as we siphon into my number four uh which is this song? Oh wait, hang on. Do you have it? You're after pulling down a CD. No, I've got, I've got, I've got the future heads, Hounds of Love. <laughs> oh, you kept your fucking HMV stickers on those with the receipt thing. Like, Did you take them off? Yeah, of course. It was like a nu- oh man, but you you would start to peel. I know, and it would, and then it would ruin be a the cover. But be, also, yeah. like it looks. Nah, I mean, like I, I don't know, man. I I, I wish you we did. Could. You steamed them off or something, didn't you? No, I I, I just. You're that guy. No, I went to cool music shops that knew how to apply stickers properly and not these horrible commercial fucking detritus dinosaurs that you favoured. And number four for uh, Arcade Fire Funeral. Yeah, yeah. look at that. It's a nice scaffold thing going on. Craig, this isn't a visual podcast. We're gonna, <laughs> number four for me, please, Adam. In my city, didn't make a sound.
The National uh, making probably their 15th appearance in the top five in an encore for a band that I always go oh I'm not into them as I used to be they pop up a lot and I picked this one the song is called Tall Saint it's a demo and it comes from uh, the Virginia EP which came out in 2008 and it was a collection of B-sides demos and live recordings associated with and connected to Boxer which came out in 2007 and Boxer was the album that got me into the National the first song yeah. I ever heard came from Alligator it was Mr. November it was put on a CD compilation for me by a friend of mine and I fell in love with the National around the, this kind of time period. I remember I saw them three times, I think over 2007, 2008. Um, I would have went to them every week at that time. I was just absolutely obsessed with them. I loved it. And this one for a B-side, for a demo, uh, I think it's one of the great National songs. I think I think it sums up what they're about so well in those lyrics uh, The Matt Berninger is espousing there. Just everything about him, like, you know, apparently, like, I guess, falling down the street, perhaps, you know, a bit merry. Um, heard a woman say, stay down, champion, stay down. Uh, there's just so much in that. Right. Yeah, yeah, there's just so much, ro- like, like sad romance uh, that the National excel at in there, in that I can see the time of night that it is. I can see the street itself. I can see the fucking stones that he's lying on. Um I got up, got in a car, you know, like, uh, like I don't think I'm going to go very far. Like, there's just these, just these little short story things that they're so good at when they're so good at them. And that I'm kind of like, I'm sure fans know and love this song, but it's not one of their publicized songs. It's just kind of there. And anytime I found any recording of it, I think it only is the one recording, like, and it is listed as a demo. I feel like it could have been one of their best songs. I think it is one of their best songs. And that's the, the thing about the B-side is, and this will come back again in my list, but like, I love the idea, and maybe you were making it with the Beatles and Rain there, um, and probably with the Strokes and Regina Spectre as well. I love the idea that the B-side can become a legitimate canon like, favourite and like as good as anything else that they've ever done, but it's a B-side and that's kind of cool. Yeah, for sure. And also, you've got to think that connection you have with that song is somehow coloured by the fact that it isn't one of the, you know crowd favorites that's like a sing-along at all the shows and not from the point of view of us being like kind of musical snobs and being like well this is something that's you know all mine and like those other people don't quite get it but I think for sure and when we've talked about like you know maybe seeing the national too much um, I think when you do see them in certain kind of environments or when you do hear songs on the radio quite a lot your memories and your connection and your emotional reaction to that song suddenly becomes coloured by all these slightly mundane encounters you've had with it. Whereas a B-side like this, a really already incredibly special song, just exists in its own little pocket that you can pull out every now and again and um, makes it all the more special. So yeah, that's a that's a lovely choice. And my number three is um, an example, I guess, of the B-side as like a creative bellwether, maybe just kind of like paving the way for... A slight change in things and um, this is a band that I've had a bit of a renaissance in recent years um, we're fans of them on this show um, but at the time this was the sound of a kind of central partnership disintegrating and how the band was going to continue um, for at least another album um, of great stuff uh, but it sounds very very carefree and glam and here it is Yeah, 
Yeah, Suede. It's Killing of a Flash Boy. It's from 1994. It was the B-side of um, We Are the Pigs, which is tremendous as well. And it's got a lot in common with that and the kind of dark murkiness of it. But I guess the difference with this song is um, that distortion, the power chords, um, the kind of glamier thing going on. It's what they would end up sounding like like once Bernard Butler left. Um this was around the Dogman Star period, which was the last record he played on with them and things weren't going so well as that was being put together. I think that album is a bit of a masterpiece. It's, you know, at the time it was seen as melodramatic and overblown and um, drug fueled, and it was all of those things. And that's why it still holds up and it's great. I think this song does as well. It's like... It's like a Mark Boland song, but with like actual grit and like decent lyrics and some depth. And there's also a dash of like Smithsian kind of like pearl clutching and it then ends up sounding like a kind of lost Bowie classic. And I imagine this ended up on a B-side because it didn't quite fit in with the sound one member of the band was going for. And this was more of a Brett Anderson song because otherwise this just sounds like a radio hit. This is like as good as We Are The Pigs. This should have been doing the business on the charts. Um, So yeah, just a kind of interesting example of, um, I guess, Brett Anderson getting that creativity out in any way he could. And since then, like they've talked about how, and they've they've loads of amazing B-sides and this one in particular, um, Ed Buller, who was a longtime kind of engineer producer with them, just said this was a waste of time. It's such a great song and it should have been on an album. We just completely wasted it. Um, thematically, apparently it was about, um, there's a few different stories, but Anderson has talked about it being, he's the flash boy. And it came from an incident where he was DJing and he refused to play a song for some like louts and they chased him down the street and like beat him up. <laughs> Jesus um, Christ. The other story was that the Flash Boy was Damon Alburn, who had um, ended up with Brett's girlfriend at the time, Justine Frischman. And it was like him living out this murder fantasy of killing the Flash Boy that is Damon Alburn. That makes a lot more sense and to me. Yeah, I think that might be it. And Brett's just trying to steer clear of that kind of thing. But yeah, he's talked about how at the time he was watching performance quite a lot with Mick Jagger and reading like the writings of Aleister Crowley and taking lots of drugs and things were getting slightly strange. And um, if Ed into the music, I mean, don't do drugs, kids, but if you're going to do drugs, record an album as good as Dogman Star. That's my advice to you. That's healthy advice, Craig. I'm glad that you're out there to Thank give you. it. Um, yeah, Suede, very unique band, I think. I, I don't give them enough attention. I should give them more attention. I, even like, you know, going to a radio single, like say, She's in Fashion, like which I went back to very recently. Um, I was thinking about it for a different top five areas. It didn't fit, though. And I was like, this is one of the best songs I've written. I think I might, I, I think, yeah. I, you know, in fact, you know, you know what it was? I was thinking like, could this be a Bond theme for alternative Bond themes? Oh yeah. They have a few songs like that. And that was That's in my, really call. that was in my pocket. I was like, I was like, I don't know if I can fully justify it. But then I, after the fact, I was like, I could, I could see it. I could see it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, 100%. <clears throat> okay. So, uh, perhaps a more conventional band next. I mean, a band that certainly would experiment and do some dark stuff, but generally play it safe. Um, this, there we go. Finally, Oasis. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> this this is an example of them being a bit strange sometimes, maybe possibly. And it's it's an interesting curio, I think.
that's uh, that's you two getting their industrial sex rhythms on with the track. <laughs> uh, Alex descends into hell for a bottle of milk slash Corova One. Now, Craig, with that song title, can yeah, you? It's not quite sweetest thing, is it? <laughs> can you possibly discern what film is being referenced there? Oh, it's um, it's the Droogs and the Lads and a Clockwork Orange, of course. You are correct, and yeah. This uh, this song. I'm just now picturing Bono being insufferable, dressed up like that, and doing a whole McFeisto thing on stage. But yeah, genuinely shocked that they didn't. This is taken from Octung yeah. uh, Octung Baby's Deluxe Edition. To to mention the whole Deluxe Edition thing again, um, <clears throat> around the time that there was rumours that Bono wrote a score for a stage version of A Clockwork Orange. I don't know how apocryphal this might be, but um, yeah, I, I think it plays into that kind of you know weird experimental form of U2, and I guess like U2, you know, around Octung baby time were pretty fucking great right I mean like yeah so this kind of makes sense think, that this was hanging around I think to give them their dues tremendously brave of them to kind of go too far with the Joshua Tree sound and basically be like the Coldplay of the time and doing kind of Americana blues stuff and being like actually this isn't creatively fulfilling so let's listen to techno go to Berlin and just completely switch it up which is just like as much as you know Bono was a pox and all that conversation Give you two or two, I think. I just desperately wish that they'd do this kind of stuff again. Um, yeah, here's yes. here's a review for you, though, taken from the Amazon website. A five-star review of this song um, by someone called Yankee Brit. Uh, and the headline is, A U2 You Might Not Recognize. Rarest of rare U2. The song, Alex Descends Into Hell for a Bottle of Milk slash Corova One, B-side of The Fly, amazing song, by the way, yeah. uh, was written by Bono and the Edge for the British Royal Shakespearean Company's stage production of A Clockwork Orange. Who knew? The song is replete with thunderous drumming, a dramatic boys' choir singing in Latin, and the edge shredding away on guitar. It has an air of violent mystery about it and builds to a climactic crescendo that gives me the chills. It has a very different sound than the U2 we all know and love, but it's a great example of their range as a band and their willingness to explore the experimental. I just hope Alex stays in hell where he belongs. Oh, wow. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a way to sign Good off. Sign off there. So um, I love the song. I think it rules. I love this era of U2. And it got me thinking about, you know, the more modern U2 because so a little a little kind of not, well, not really an anecdote of my own because it's 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 taken from someone else's anecdote. But so um, I mentioned that I've been, you know, I'm back in work. I'm, I'm back with Joe.ie for anybody who cares. Um, so I was working last weekend, right? Yeah. And beautiful day uh, turned 21 on the day that I was working. And I thought, oh, I'll just put up a post about that on the Joe Facebook page. I'm sure the discerning audience that we have will be very happy about this. So I got like a still from the video and you put a Joe logo on it, you know, exciting stuff. And then um, I just said like, beautiful day is 21 years of age today. What's the best U2 song? Um, and I looked back at the comments the next day. Like, I was just like, let's see what people have to say. I see and plenty, of course, of Bono is a pox, yada, yada. But there's one comment that stood out to me. Um, somebody said... Uh, my band were playing in in Top of the Pops on the same day that you two were playing their recording Beautiful Day. And I remember it well. It was amazing or whatever. The guy who wrote that comment was named Fergal Matthews. With that information, Craig, can you figure out what band he was in? 21 years Fergal ago. Fergal Matthews. Fergal Matthews. And he was like, I was on Top of the Pops with my band that day. And you two were there. And it was great. Didn't even shout out his own band, but a couple people did it in the replies to him. 21 years, Irish band. Uh, Am I going to kick myself? Not necessarily. I will say he was the drummer in this band. Um... Mm. 21 years ago like in in, indie band I think we were were probably fans to a degree they released two albums to date and then split up 
and not all of them have gone on to do different things, really. So, um, was JJ seventy two correct? That era? Yay, yeah, you got it. Incredible. I, I thought I, I thought it was just a nice thing. I was like, oh my god, yeah. fellow Drawda man as well. Apparently, um, <laughs> so yeah, small world. Are JJ seventy two sure. the better band? We'll never know. Then you too. I'm just doing a thing, like. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't joke around, man. <laughs> that's me. That's me throwing to you for the next segment. <laughs> I know, but you know, some things are important to get straight. And let's move on to an artist that is better than both of them, shall we? Wow. When it's you Oasis, have your, <laughs> will we deal with Oasis now, right? What? Because I don't what, think they're going to feature in our lists. <laughs> Against the wall, no. They were on my short list. I must say, right. Oasis had a moment where they were like Noel Gallagher was writing songs that should have been singles, and he just threw away his B sides. Yes, is, is yeah, my hand up there, like a like like a diligent pupil. Is is acquiesce a B side? Acquiesce is, and it's amazing. That's a great song. Yeah, and the master plan, which is like the B side of Wonderwall, and is better. I always love that quote from him, where he was just like at the time, Alan McGee was just like. He had, he was like, we need a B-side. And Noel turned in like <laughs> the master plan. We need a B-side, plan. guys. And, uh, <laughs> <Alan> <laughs> McGee was just like, this can't be a B-side. Like, this is, this is incredible. And um, like, just give us something something else that's like, a, you know, a B-side, <laughs> just like a throwaway. And Noel Gallagher says like, at the, at the time he was full of, you know, hubris and drugs and stuff. And he was just like, I don't write shit songs, man. <laughs> just put it out. And then he's like, smash cut to like two years later. I was like, can we put the master plan out as a single? <laughs> I've got no songs. So yeah, there's a little shout out to Oasis. And let's move on to my number two. The purple one, it's She's Always In My Hair. It's from, recorded in 1983, I believe, um, came out in 85. And again, just one of these, you know, yeah, purple patch, I guess is the phrase. But um, it was the flip of Paisley Park, I believe. Um, the album was Around the World in a Day. So you're like, he's still with the revolution. Purple Rain has just come out. He's a megastar and he's rolling out songs like this. I suppose when you have your like bathroom wired for sound, just in case you need to start like recording a guitar solo while, while you're in the jacks, you're bound to come up with some worthwhile B-sides. Um, and this is top five prints for me. So Whoa, overall, really? I've always loved this song. I think it's great. I think, yeah, I think... I think it's a great example of, I can't remember who said it, but there was a quote about Prince being essentially James Brown, Marvin Gaye and Jimi Hendrix all rolled into one. And I think there's like, there's elements of this here where it's just so much going on. So it's ostensibly like a funk pop song, but it's kind of heavy metal. There's jazz there, there's blues, and it's just so hooky and melodic. And, um... I guess tender and kind of raw and um, revealing. And there was, I, I discovered um, this excerpt from a book prints in the Purple Rain era studio sessions, 1983 and 1984. So a book about a two year period, <laughs> which is just shows like the levels of um, 
fandom, I suppose. Uh, Dwayne Tudor was the guy, but he just like it goes through the recording of this song. And at the time, he was just recording at home constantly, and he'd have an engineer on standby. But most of the time, he would just be like, "I'll just kind of punch it in myself." Sat at a piano for a bit, came up with the melody in like ten minutes grabbed a guitar, did the guitar part. It's like done in some ludicrous amount of time. But the song itself is actually about um, his partner at the time, Jill Jones, I believe, one of his um, girlfriends. And it was, he basically gave it to her, a cassette of it to her as an apology after they had some like disagreement where she talks about how Prince was very orderly, very organised, and he thought I was a complete slob. I was lots of fun, but kind of messy, leaving stuff everywhere. And I was like, well, I was going to get to it later. (laughs) And Prince had a moment where he just kind of like exasperatedly said to her, who does that? And she was like, who does what? And he was just like, you leave little bits everywhere you go and kind of walked off shaking his head. She got annoyed and he's like, I better write her a song. So he wrote this like masterpiece, right? (laughs) presents her the cassette she puts it on and then there's a lyric in it which i'm sure you know where he goes maybe i'll marry her maybe i won't <laughs> and he's like oh. and she lost it and like tore the house apart and he's just like what i love you baby and um yeah she goes on to say obviously we never end up getting married he was just married to the music and i think that was the best thing for him um but great song and yeah there's a great d'angelo version there's a great live version uh prince did on arsenio hall which is on youtube which you should check out and he just kind of rips an incredible guitar solo. And yeah, it's top five prints for me. So I had to go in. Uh, that anecdote you told there kind of actually sets up my number two quite well. So let's hear it. Taken from the 1994 B-Sides and Outtakes record Pisces Iscariot, this is of course Smashing Pumpkins, and the song is called Starla. Smashing Pumpkins, Smashing Pumpkins podcast, that's what we are now these days. Yeah. Uh, here is a quote. Fine with that to be honest. Here's a quote, 11 minute song by the way, and it's an absolute beauty. Yeah. Uh, here's a Billy Corgan quote from the liner notes of that record. Apparently, I mean I don't know if this is true, it might not be, I don't have Pisces Iscariot, I should get it. He says, I met this girl in Dallas when we were on tour with the Chili Peppers and that was where I got the idea for the name for the song because when she said her name I thought wow what a great title for a song two and a quarter years later <laughs> I, I run into this same girl Normal. I run into the same girl at a party and I say did you hear the song we recorded using your name Starla and she said no my name is Darla but hey Starla <laughs> Darla whatever it doesn't matter so it. there whatever. you go <laughs> Incredible, because I love how like it has the Prince thing of like, well, yeah, like I, I, I'm more in love with me and the music I'm writing yeah. than you. I'd love if his response was just like, Darla, that's not a song title at all. <laughs> <Just walked laughs> off. Presumably it was. He elaborated on it years later. Well, the song itself, he was just describing like he was explaining to his fans what B-sides were and how in the UK, in order to get your single heard and released and pushed by the record company, you had to give them what they call B-sides. So this was the B-side to a track called I Am One, which was released in 1992. Uh, I guess it kind of got its second life or second wind on Pisces Iscariot two years later. There's a Rolling Stone review of Pisces Iscariot where the writer uh, said, 
It doesn't really sound like the compilation of Rejects it actually is. In fact, it's better than a lot of albums that bands laboured hard to put together um, in a three out of five review. Um, but yeah, I mean, listen, I just keep finding these, not five, I've heard this song before, of course, but like, I guess finding a new appreciation for a lot of what Corgan was doing at the height of his, the peak of his powers, because honestly, man, not to get all like, I, like I, I put together like a music quiz this week thing for, for again, for Joe. And it's like... One of the rounds I did was like, you know, oh, tell me who these front men are or what band they're in or whatever. And I was just like frantically Googling for like current American rock bands, alternative bands that are like massive or whatever. And I'm, I'm veering so dangerously close here to, well, it was better in my day. But like, honestly, like imagine Dragons versus Smashing Pumpkins. Like, what are we doing? You know what I mean? I mean, like, I don't know. I, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is this is a great song and they're a great band. Well said. Okay. And speaking of great bands, here is my number one. And it's, um, you might say the original Gallagher Brothers. Actually, that does them a massive disservice. They just fought a lot. Here's the song. Like everybody else. I'm not like everybody else. And I My beloved Kings, I'm not like everybody else. It was the B side of Sunny Afternoon, um, which was a huge hit. I think it was in 1966 again. I believe it also bumped a Beatles song off the top of the charts. It was the biggest song of that year. And this was the flip and the one I go to a lot more. Um, an interesting one. It's kind of a fan favourite. They would play it a lot live. And it was a song that Ray Davies had actually written for the animals. They turned it down. So he was just like, here, Dave, his, um, his brother and the guitarist of the band, um, why don't you sing lead on this one? Um, which kind of a bit out of the ordinary. So they kind of joined together in parts on this song, um, flip around a bit, and it just adds something extra to it. Uh, it's already a kind of really well-written song, but it has these kind of kaleidoscopic vocals. It's tough to put your finger on, yeah, but I don't know, it adds to this sense of like band camaraderie or something and it's quite a stirring number. And I guess because like the kinks would often do that like withering thing or understated thing or um, quite like self-critical thing in their lyrics. They weren't like a big boisterous band outside of some of the early singles that, you know, invented heavy metal and that kind of thing you know you really got me and that kind of thing but actually most of their albums are quite inward looking and um you know quietly despairing i guess so when they do a song like this that is a bit of a stirring anthem it kind of makes a difference um it just kind of strikes a bit more than a big kind of brash rock band and yeah this was a kind of another turning point for this group um they were just moving into the phase where they were releasing albums like face to face and Ray Davies was like, okay, I'm writing all of the songs now, which was something that a lot of rock bands were starting to do. And yeah, he rolled out Face to Face, something else, Village Green, Lola versus Paramount. They've about six or seven just incredible albums in a row at that stage. And um, this kind of signaled, okay, he's into a new phase of writing. It's tremendous. There's a live version of this where it's kind of weirdly grungy and it's weirdly like a kind of arena sized take on it. Um, I think it came out in like the the mid 90s, but it was used at the end of a Sopranos episode, um, 
kind of like a season five episode. I don't know if you remember the scene where it's just like um, Janice has like had to go to like anger management and Tony's like forced her to go to anger management and she started to get it together and things are going well and family life is good and Tony goes around to Bobby and Janice's and just for a family kind of meal and he's watching her be completely pleasant and like when things should be knocking her off course and she should be like erupting with rage she's dealing with it brilliantly and everything is happy in their worlds and like Tony is completely miserable so he keeps prodding her (laughs) about her son until she flips out there's like pandemonium and Tony's just smiling he walks out of the house he walks down the street and his song kicks in I'm not like everybody else and it's fucking one of my favourite Sopranos moments and it was just like one of those moments where like okay this show is genius so that's another kind of point in its favour uh, yeah and that's a conversation for, for another day Craig we all know where I stand in the Sopranos another episode a good yes, show yeah. Not the best show of all time. Uh, great choice. Uh, the B-Sides thing is interesting because, I mean, like there's, there are some obvious heavy hitters. I have picked one for my yeah. number one. You can probably guess it. But, like, for example, How Soon Is Now by The Smiths didn't make it in for me. Or you, it seems. Yeah. It's, uh, do you know what the, the thing was? Some of the songs felt so massive that they were no longer B-Sides. Well, that's, <laughs> you know I mean? that, like, in fairness, my number one is that for that reason. And I will say... Okay, well, it's your number one. Well, I, so. I will say before I preview this clip, um, this like shot up the ladder during the week. It was kind of like a lower down. I almost had a number five. I was like, well, you know, it's so obvious I'll get it out of the way. But the more I listened to it, the more I was like, well, this is actually a legitimate magic spell. And thus, it's my number one. It's famous, not not that big of a Radiohead fan, Dave, picking yet another Radiohead song in the top five. It's Radiohead and it's talk show host. Craig. Glad you picked it. Yeah, I mean, like, in fairness, shout out to uh, our former Headstuff comrade, still our friend, of course, Paddy O'Leary, who messaged, I think, both me and you with the same message this week, yeah. a linked talk show host, and was like, well, one is better pick it. And then I guess me and you must have had this <laughs> there you go, telekinetic game where I was like, Craig's definitely going to pick this, but I'm definitely picking it. So here it is. Um, right. Yeah. Incredible song. Uh, the B-side to uh, Street Spirit Fade Out. And... Of course, a remix of it would end up on Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet film in 1996 or 7, I think. 6, I think. Um, but yeah, it's just beyond hypnotic. Um, I kept listening to it all week and I was like, this is a, this is just outstanding. Like The fact that this is B-side, I think, is kind of almost like ignorant. There's something just like, like it's like, how dare you, you know, like have yeah. this as a B-side. Are you joking me? It's fucking unbelievable. Uh, I, I played, a, it was a live cut there from them on Jules Holland, which is a clip well worth looking up. Uh, I'm going to quote a writer called Josh Modell, writing for the AV Club in 2015 with a brief reappraisal of this one, making the point that, you know, Radiohead took a B-side and turned it into one of the best songs anyone's ever heard. The spare, slinky, scary talk show host originally appeared as B-side to Street Spirit, 
back when British labels were releasing two short CDs for every, I, I guess Americans really didn't understand this concept for a long time, uh, were releasing two short CDs for every single in a bald-faced attempt to game the charts. Uh, but the song got a second life when it was remixed by superstar producer Nelly Hooper for the soundtrack to Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. The song was composed during a particularly fertile period for the band. It can easily stand shoulder to shoulder with anything on the bends and even portend some of the musical leap the band would make next with OK Computer. Talk show host has a trip-hop feel already. It's a slow burner that Hooper made even scarier by pulling in some of the instrumentation and adding some dub-inspired echo to the background. Tom York's lyrics sound as paranoid as he'd soon get. There aren't many, but they paint the picture of a lonely man gearing up for a fight. And just to tie it in again further with the Romeo and Juliet thing, a film I really love, by the way, I've mean to revisit for some time. I always associate this with that film, like, visually, Mm. immediately, particularly... I'm sure there are many scenes of this and many shots of this, but like just DiCaprio in his kind of colorful garb on a, like on a sun dappled beach looking unbelievable and just, but like with the weight of the world on his shoulders, just the, the, the ultimate teen angst, like the, the re reappropriation of Shakespeare in a way that I really do appreciate. And like, I wouldn't have thought to put this song in that movie, but fuck me, it works. Totally does. Um, yeah, I was going to use the word slinky, weirdly enough, and it was, you you read it out. Um, it, it sounds like it might be like Jeff Barrow's favourite Radiohead song. It's very trip-hoppy. It's weirdly sultry, but also despairing. And that's just a kind of a magic trick, as you say, that very few bands could pull off. Radiohead did it a lot. I do feel like they've been shortchanged maybe sometimes on our top fives, particularly like when we did uh, unreleased tracks. I was like, if we did unreleased tracks three, four, five years ago, my top five could have been Radiohead, but they've actually been really generous and just doing kind of re-releases and stuff and putting out the likes of Lift and so many songs that would be... The thing with Radiohead is like they've so many unreleased or now newly released songs or B-sides where that would be the high point of another band's career, (laughs) entire career. And they've not quite dozens of them, but approaching that and... This might be the absolute outstanding one. So yeah, well-deserved, a good number one. And you're welcome, Paddy. <laughs> Nicely done. Um, looking after us this week on the Sonics was, of course, the human equivalent of a double A side. It is Sonic Architect <laughs> Adam, the wonderful, the beautiful, the amazing. We love you so much, sir. Uh, next week on the show, it is, of course, episode 300. I think we're going to review the Coldplay album. That's how you celebrate your 300 yeah. episode, isn't it? With a new radio head. Do you know what it's called? This, you know the five of the tracks are like titled by emojis don't you it's uh I, i'm hearing it's a concert concept record right it's uh is it music of the spheres or something you of that have it correct it is music of okay. the spheres and Great. yeah it's going to be which i believe was already an ian brown album whatever okay good stuff maybe he's on there um hopefully not uh so yeah we mentioned earlier on <laughs> <Doing> an anti-vax <laughs> eric clapton in the liner notes heel turn yeah. they said that they want to be more sustainable with this new tour so maybe they're getting a, a van donated to them by a certain someone <laughs> so anyway look Next week on the show, it is 300. Uh, we, we would love you to celebrate with us. So please tune in and we will hopefully, hopefully have something to make it a little bit different. But, you know, again, life, anything can happen in life. Um, and if, if your life is enriched by this podcast, you can always check out patreon.com slash Think of it as a 300 birthday present. By all means, throw us the price of a pint or I don't know, whatever, whatever you want. You know, it's all up to you. But most Get importantly, a van. Most, a van. <laughs> throw us a van. <laughs> we can drive around <laughs> in and spread the word about vaccinations. Uh, all I'm saying is do your own research, Craig. No, I'm kidding. I'm fully vaxxed. Uh, Craig's after spitting out his water. It's okay. Don't worry. 
doing. And anyway, look, listen, the point I'm trying to make is, uh, it's, it's, we'll reflect more on this next week, I'm sure. But like, uh, I love doing the show. And even today, like this has felt like a two week, week in one. I think it's been the case for an awful lot of people, but I had a moment Same, earlier yeah. on where I was like, I'm really looking forward to fucking half six when I can be with my buddies and I can record this show and hopefully be a fun episode. And hopefully it was. So please tell your friends if they're in the market for a music podcast, no encore every single week. And thank you very much. My name is Dave Hanrowdy. This has been No Encore. There will be no encore. Back next week with fucking episode 300. Take care out there. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.